This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Welcome to Talking Gardens. I'm Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated, and each episode this series, I'm asking people to tell me about their dream gardens. My guest this time is Nigel Slater, the cook, food writer, and passionate home gardener. So, Nigel, if you could create your dream garden out of anything and everything you've seen before, other gardens you've visited or places you've been, What's the first thing that you would pick that you would sort of use as inspiration for your fantasy space? It would be the little courtyard gardens in the back streets of Japanese cities. They're quite private. They're not spaces that you are very often invited into, but you are invited to look. So you'll be walking through the streets and you'll see a wall or a fence, and then there'll be a gap where there's a very tall gate. That gate will be open. It'll be a trellis work. And when you look inside, it's simply the pathway from the pavement to somebody's front door. Sometimes six feet, sometimes 20 feet. But that little space is so magical. They're enchanting. There will be a path often of granite or of York stone. And then there will be little cobbles. Next to that, there will be specimen plants. And they'll be planted. They're not usually in pots. Some of them look as if they've been there for ages. A highly curated, tiny space with just a few very carefully chosen plants and very subtle but very beautiful lighting at night. And I think of it as, yes, it's a welcome to somebody's home, but also 
it's almost like a gift. You know, in Amsterdam, if you're walking along the canals or the Kaisersgracht or something, and people leave their blinds open for you to get this little peep into their home, and it's irresistible. It's a little bit like that. We're giving this to you. You can, as a passerby, you can get this little sneaky peep into our world. Just don't try and open the gate. <laughs> Do you think that we here in the UK have a lot to learn about that sort of front garden space? Sort of people tend to pave over them here, don't they? <sighs> the Use them for a parking the space bins. and they oh, the bin store. <laughs> Who decided to give people purple wheelie bins? I don't know. <laughs> we have a lot to learn about, about front gardens. They're a luxury. But also our front gardens are quite narrow compared to those in other places. There isn't a lot of space between the pavement and, and your front door. So you have to make the most of it. And yes, a lot of people use it as a car park, somewhere to put the dustbins. Others do go to quite a lot of trouble. And I think, who are you doing this for? They're not going to see it because they're inside. They're doing it for us. They're doing it for the people walking down the street. And I do think it's a very generous and lovely thing. But we have a lot to learn about how to use those few feet in front of our, our houses. And what's your front garden like? Do you have a front garden? I've stolen my front garden. <laughs> Do tell. Well, I liked the house 20 years ago. I saw it and I realized that it was a very typical terrace garden, long and thin, a big rectangle of sort of 35 meters with no front garden. There was a light well going down to the basement and that was it. But opposite, there was some pretty much untended, clearly abandoned green space. And it goes right the way along the terrace. And I asked who owned it and nobody seemed to know. Nobody ever pruned the trees. Occasionally, some kind resident would come along and pick up the crisp packets and things. I thought, I'll have that. So the little space in front of my building, I have sort of stolen it. And after 20 years there, I actually got a letter from the council recently saying, would I trim the trees? So I thought, oh, so it is mine then. <laughs> You've been squatting for so long. I've been squatting <laughs> for so long that they've actually given it to me. But of course, I now have to prune the trees on the other side because they're knocking cyclists off their bikes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so a bit of guerrilla gardening slash garden squatting going on there. I'm all for it. <laughs> and in this gorgeous little front courtyard garden that you're imagining, the, inspired by those in Japan. What sort of plants do you think? Is there a certain range of plants that maybe you don't grow now that you feel, yes, in my dream garden, I would have to have those plants? When you posed this question originally, my dream garden, what I didn't realise was that although I love my garden, I'm very, very fond of it and the plants in it. It's not my dream garden. Oh my goodness, have I started a crisis of... <laughs> I think I was there before, before you asked me about this. But my dream garden is almost the polar opposite. So my space from sort of midsummer until probably the middle of winter is a rather, well, I call it romantic tangle, where the wisteria is entangled with the climbing rose and the climbing rose is creeping up into the fig tree. And the fig tree has a climbing rose in it that I don't even know where it came from. It's as if all the plants are holding hands. And frankly, I am not in control. Nature is kind of wanting the garden back. 
from me. When I started thinking about my dream garden, I realized that what I'm after is a garden in which I am completely in control. Every leaf, every twig, every single detail. A few years ago, I was in a village in Japan, and I traveled quite a long way on a bus to get there. And it was, it was in Kurokawa. And I arrived at this little country inn. To get to the front door, you had to go through a garden of camellias and aces. And I walked through and went to my room, and it was very late. I went to bed. Woke up the next morning, and I was very aware there was something extremely different. The light was very diffused. And there was almost silence, apart from this very regular swish, swish, swish. So I pulled the blinds across, the wooden blinds, and peered out. And overnight, the garden was completely covered in deep snow. So all of the bushes and all of the plants were like little anonymous hillocks and tussocks and cushions of snow. And the sound was coming from an elderly woman with a great big straw hat who was walking along the pathway with a straw broom, just flicking the snow out of the path, not going anywhere near the plants. So all of the horizontal twigs and branches that were coming over the path, she was leaving them be with their layer of snow. She was just almost curating this beautiful path through the snow to the other end of the garden. It was so different from the way I would clear the snow at home, which ends up with gravel and salt and boiling water. And it all turns to slush. And then I hit all the plants around it with the broom and knock the snow off. It was so different. What she created with this sort of poetic movement was a very special bit of gardening. It was how I wanted to garden where you think, I'm going to create a path through all these plants from A to B, but I'm going to do it, that it's a very beautiful thing. And that, to me, is missing in my own garden, is the idea that I can spend a lot of time doing something. I can choose not to get the job done, but to enjoy doing it, the actual process. Many years ago, I was at Sissinghurst, and I watched as a young gardener was sitting on the pathway, trimming the creeping thyme. And it was in flower, and it was just creeping over the pavements. I swear she was doing it with nail scissors, literally stem by stem. It was a beautiful thing to watch, and it stopped me in my tracks. That's how I want to garden. So my dream garden, the plants in it, are things that actually I can look after with very great care. So, yes, there will be some topiary. There will be plants where it matters exactly how I prune them. I want to have the time to think, should it be that branch or should it be that one? Rather than how I garden now, which tends to be in a little bit of a rush. Howard Hodgkin, the, the painter, he would sit in front of a canvas for hours, for days, deciding where he was going to put a particular stroke. And then he'd get up, he'd put paint on his brush, do one stroke, and then he'd sit down again. And he'd be there for several hours. I want a garden like that. 
Down to the very minutest of detail and completely absorbed in the process. Absorbed in the process. But because my garden will principally be green, now my own garden is mostly layers and layers of green, but what it lacks is the deep emerald green of moss. I simply don't have the right soil. I don't have the right climate. I have got a square of moss. My garden is split into three rooms. And the middle room is sheltered between two very large yew hedges, which I put in 20 years ago as little sticks. I was having a sort of Levin's Hall moment, I think. And they're now huge, vast, dark green, almost black hedges. And in between them is a layer of, of bricks. And bless these bricks, they have collected moss. It's completely covered them. I want more of that. And I want it all over the garden. I want to walk on that velvety cushion, that very dark green. That's what I want to walk on. And in amongst it, there has to be pops of colour. Now, I was brought up with a very 1950s garden. Lawn and rings cut into the grass, very beautifully by my father. And then in each hole, as it were, there'd be an apple tree, there'd be a little willow, there'd be an azalea. The only thing I want from that, thank you, are the azaleas. So I would like the odd specimen plant in amongst my moss. And they would be the sort of azaleas that are salmon and honey and gold and amber colours. They wouldn't be the ones that I've got on my roof. I have a little roof garden. And I went shopping for azaleas. Unfortunately, I didn't Google the variety. I just looked at the picture on the label, which of course had faded. So when they came into flower, my beautiful sort of honey bronze colored azaleas are absolutely screaming pillar box red. And I want to give them away, but I can't get them off the roof now because they're so big. They're about the only plant in my garden that survives everything. <laughs> The way I treat it. I mean, I do love my plants and I do look after them, but I don't look after these. And yet year after year, they come back. To spite you. To spite me. They know. They know. There's a wonderful variety called Klondike, which is a, a proper golden yellow. And I would love that in amongst my moss. Also, there has to be an Acer. And I've managed to do this at home, but the Japanese do it in a much better, much better style. Of where you have a very acidic lime green maple leaf that sits over some dark green moss. You get this wonderful contrast of greens, the acid and then the very dark bottle green beneath it. I want to create that. And I know that that also brings in a bit of colour in the autumn, the wonderful golds and reds that those, those plants become. I'd also like some little tiny stars. So many years ago, I, um, Dan Pearson designed part of my garden, which is one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Gretchen-Williams slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Savinia takes a shot herself! Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like UGG, Samsung, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use. And you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. That's Rakuten. Yes, um, I can imagine everyone listening is going, your garden was designed by Dan Pearson, you lucky thing. That was the bit that wasn't designed by Monty Don. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. But the the plants that Dan introduced me to, I only realized once they were in and growing that they all had a lightness to them. And many of them were like little, almost like little stars, Brunnera and Epimediums. I'd never heard of an epimedium before I met Dan. They are like having little jewels at the bottom of your garden. There's one called Amber Queen, which I grow. It's not flowering as well as it did, but it's still very beautiful. I would like some very small star-like plants, some wild anemones. I don't even mind a clump of Honorine Jobert, the, the big Japanese anemones, which I've got in the garden. They're like big butterflies, things that twinkle. Now, I met you, I just stepped off Chris Beardshaw's That's garden. That's right, at Chelsea, yeah. You know the generosity of gardeners mm. who say, come in, come and look at my garden. And you, you know what Chris is like, you spend 10 minutes with him and you learn so much. Yes, a font of knowledge about plants, Chris a Beardshaw. A font of yeah. knowledge. And, and, but Chris wants you to know, he, he wants you to, to guide you through every plant. And as you and I met, as I, as I stepped off the garden, I was thinking... I must remember that one moss that he's got in, in between the flags in his bath. <laughs> and of course it's gone. And the reason I loved it is because it has little white stars mm. on it. And I'd never seen it before. And I know that I probably can't grow it in my garden here. So it's in my dream garden. Oh, good. Okay, yes. We'll <laughs> add it to the list. It's interesting that you pick azaleas. I would say they are not the most fashionable plant mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. Definitely that idea of, you know, rhododendrons, azaleas, sort of more woodland plants, uh, you know, that they're, they're definitely not in style right now. But 
I know that down at Sissinghurst, they are redoing the Azalea Bank. Ah. So we can have hope that they will be the next trendy thing <laughs> and you will be with the zeitgeist. <laughs> I'm afraid I feel much about fashions in gardens as I do about fashions in food. Yes. <laughs> there are good plants and good gardens in the same way as there's, there's good food. And there's stuff that isn't. And the idea that something is fashionable, I get slightly annoyed and frustrated by it because it's a good plant just because it, it isn't the latest thing. So I'll stand my ground with, with even with rhododendrons, and they work very well in moss gardens. If you go to some of the bigger Japanese gardens, you'll see that they have kept their rhododendrons really quite big, like the ones that I was brought up with when I was a kid. Ones you feel you could almost climb into and there'd be a little, a little den inside, you know. No, I, I, I love them. Any plant, I suppose, that has quite, quite delicate flowers, I do love. I'm not very fond of what I call pom-pom flowers. So although I love camellias, I love the leaves. And when they're left to their own devices, the shape of the branches, not keen on the flowers, the double ones, this little, I feel they should be taken off the plant and put on the side of a, a horse that's just won a, you know. <laughs> like a rosette. Like a rosette. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I'm not fond. The single ones, yes. Mm. Although, obviously, the white ones or the pale pink ones end up turning brown the second that there's any kind of frost or rain, which is a bit of a bugbear of a lot of people who grow them. But they are something about them that early in the year, you just think, oh, thank God, some colour. <laughs> but, you know, I don't need colour. I mean, when my, when my garden at home is mostly brown and green, but then I've got a few snowdrops and a few white muscaria coming up, I'm very happy. I'm not sure I actually need colour. Right now, yes, I'm waiting for my dahlias to open, but they're little pops and splashes of colour that somehow emphasise the greenness. And I'd be, I'd be happy with an all-green garden, I've got to be honest. Yeah, I, I do a little Insta-stalking and I see that you have <laughs> uh, lots of gorgeous sort of uh, foxgloves um, oh. in early summer and then the dahlias later on. So, yes, spots of colour. Well, it seems like quite a lot of colour going on there, but they do have a, a life of their own, don't they? They don't necessarily do what you want them to do. I'm not sure any plant does what I want it to do, which is why I want my dream garden with, <laughs> where, I can, where I can yeah. curate it and have control. <laughs> the foxgloves were extraordinary this year because there weren't many around. I had to really search to find them. And when they arrived, the plants weren't as strong as usual, and I was a little bit disappointed. And then suddenly, they just became this forest of lilac and lavender and soft pink and apricot. And they really looked beautiful. And I grew most of them in pots. And then I try, I, I, I take them back into the sort of woodlandy bit of my garden and plant them in the hope that they'll reseed. I've not been very lucky previously with that. But yes, it is these splashes of colour, this sudden vibrancy, or in the case of foxgloves, a softer colour against the different greens. I really try to encourage that. One of the strange things about, and, and it's an anomaly and it, it wouldn't work, but about my dream garden is I know I will miss my big green tub of tulips. I've got a copper, an old copper, a vast planter that is now very dark with verdigris. And every year I put tulips in it, usually bright orange and very deep 
reds and burgundies and maroons. And I, I know I would miss that particular piece of planting. It's a good start to the year, the gardening year, to wake up and just to see this carnival of gorgeous tulips against the green. It's fabulous. And when we talk about plants that you grow, I mean, how many edible plants do you grow? Is it in amongst everything else? Do you have a sort of separate section where you grow food? Do you, do you grow much food yourself? I mean, obviously, as a, as a cookery writer, do you buy everything in or is there that influence coming through from the garden from what's seasonal? I mean, you've written lovely seasonal books about food that's out right now. So when I realized that I'd at last got a garden of my own, the first thing I did was to plant vegetables and fruit. And this is where Monty came in because I was talking to my editor at, at The Observer about it and, and he said, well, why don't we ask Monty to have a look? And bless him, he came over for lunch and he drew a, a, a little plan on the back of an envelope and pointed out, and it's been so useful, the fact that the one side of my garden is the raspberry side and the other side is the strawberry side. So there's a very definite, very moist, quite cool side to my garden for the raspberries and the other side baking sun for the strawberries. And that was a really good start because it allowed me to put into the beds peas, broad beans, and I love broad bean flowers. I had beans growing up, hazel wigwams, hazel canes. I even grew cauliflowers. I was doing quite well. Lots of herbs, all mixed up. There'd be mombrisha, there'd be Michaelmas daisies in amongst them. And there were moments when I was blissfully happy with that garden. And yes, of course, I'd harvest the peas and they'd be gone before I even took them in the house to cook them. <laughs> but next to my, my garden is a deserted garden. It's not used at all. And it became the home to a huge family of foxes. So they would sunbathe in their garden. But at night, they'd come into my garden to play. And I would wake up and find devastation. They would have completely knocked everything to pieces. And it happened one year and then the next year. And then after the third year of realizing that I was at war with the foxes and I didn't love the things they'd bring into my garden, like other people's pizza boxes. <laughs> the worst was a dismembered doll, which was really creepy. That's very creepy. It was really creepy. So I thought, you know what? I've got to rethink the garden. I can't rethink my neighbors. I'm going to have to start again. and. It's not quite foxproof, but the garden that is there now, with the topiary and the roses and lots of ferns, I've got a little medlar tree, and under its canopy, I've planted as many ferns as I can. It's pretty much foxproof. I do find the odd present in there, <laughs> but mostly it's the garden that, that, that I, I want it to be. But there's no fruit and veg. What I've got is growing in tubs. So I've got, I've been really lucky with finding these old zinc planters that I've filled with thyme and sage and fennel and nasturtiums. And there's a point in the late summer when they get quite chaotic and very beautiful. And the thyme is sort of creeping down the front of them. And nasturtiums, they wander everywhere. And 
it's very, I suppose it's not ideal, but it works for me that I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking and I'll say, oh, I need some lemon thyme. And I go out with my scissors and I can pick it and come straight back in. And yes, I'd much rather pick the beans and the peas and dig the potatoes as I used to. But the herbs are okay. They're a good second best. So Nigel, you've told us so far that your dream garden would be like one of those small front courtyard gardens from Japan. And it would have maybe a little sprinkling of snow, lots of moss spreading itself throughout the place. Nice acer arching over some gorgeous azaleas. If there was something else that you had to have, maybe a feature or an element that you really adore that you've seen somewhere else that you would have to have in your dream garden, what else would you pick? Stars. One of the things I miss about living in London is when I come out into the garden at night, it's dark, apart from a slightly eerie glow from the football stadium, which seems to have its floodlights on at inconvenient hours. I miss the stars. And I would hopefully be able to go into my garden at night. I'd like, I'm I'm not a great fan of floodlighting gardens, and I don't think it's very fair on the wildlife, but I do like a bit of subtle, very gentle illumination. So I would like some lanterns here and there. And then when I look up, I want the stars. If I could have a mad moment, if you'd allow me to have a crazy moment. I went to see the... um, the Museum of, of Modern Art in, uh, in Kanazawa, in Japan. And I left and walked through their huge botanical garden, which is half a day's worth of gorgeous, gorgeous sightseeing. And I came out and there was somebody selling ice cream. I thought, you know, I really fancy a cornet. And I was on my own and nobody would see me. So I went and asked for a cornet. And I remember the lady pulled this lever and this perfect cone, this swirl of vanilla ice cream. And as she handed it to me, she went to sprinkle something on top. And I thought, please don't put sprinkles on my beautiful vanilla cornet. But what she sprinkled was gold leaf, crumbled gold leaf. Wow. And I walked off holding my my vanilla cornet with with this gold leaf on top. And I sat under some almond blossom on a bench. If I'd have died at that moment, I would have been blissfully happy. (laughs) It was a moment of perfection. So slightly against, against the grain, but I would like a soft serve ice cream machine very neatly tucked away in my little garden. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. I think that might be the best inclusion we've had in a dream garden so far. Now, would it be 99s or would all of them come with crumbled gold leaf? Well, I quite like a 99, to be honest. Yeah, there's something about them, isn't there? Yeah, there is. (laughs) Any other flights of fantasy? Anything else that, you know, you think, oh, go on then, I have to have that in my fantasy garden? I'm a great, a great lover of, as we've, we've noted, unfashionable plants. And one of the things that I've fallen in love with recently is hydrangeas. And I know people raise their eyes when you talk about hydrangeas, but when they are very open, so not the the pom-pom type, the sort the of big, Annabelle. Yeah, yeah. big-headed, the flop-over. That's right, yeah. the, the, the floppy ones. Even strong Annabelle. The ones I like are the other lace caps, the open ones. And I couldn't quite work out why I liked them so much and also why I liked epimediums and why I like little anemones. 
And I've realized the missing thing in my garden are fairies. Fairies. They are like epimediums at the bottom of your garden. It's like having little fairies. With their little tutu skirts. With their little tutu (laughs) skirts. So if I'm allowed, please, can I have some fairies at the bottom of my garden, either in the floral sense or preferably real ones? With a little ring for it, maybe. You just maybe don't see them, but you know they're there, living their best lives in their fairy way. I wouldn't want to interrupt them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming from Ireland, I can tell you that, yes, when you interrupt fairies, there's always a story where things go horribly wrong for you. Yes, they can be quite naughty, can't they? Yes, they can. Yes, you wake up with things in your bed and all sorts. So (laughs) uh, the second you say that, it just brings me back to my childhood with stories from Sheila de Valera, where you do not mess with the fairies. So we will leave them be in their corner, enjoying them themselves. And if there was sort of a person or people that you would like to share this lovely dream garden with, is there anyone that springs to mind? There is this awful thing I carry with me of hell is other people, but cooks and people who make things to eat, I think they're very much like gardeners, that you don't bake a cake for yourself. You don't even make a pot of tea, really, for yourself. You make it to share. And I think gardens are very much the same. You want somebody to share that garden with you, that space with you, to enjoy it. And because they've done, in many ways, they sort of sowed the seed, if you like, in my own garden. I would love Monty and Dan to come and spend some time It worries me that the gardens have moved on a little bit. There is the most gorgeous cornuscusa, which has now become the major tree in the garden, which Dan encouraged me to plant. There is a medlar, a Nottingham medlar, that Monty Don said, have a medlar because it's quite domestic-sized and it will behave, although it does take quite a bit of pruning now. I would love them to come and see how the garden has moved on, but I would love them in my dream garden because I know they would both understand it. They'd get it. I'm sure they would. And if there was something that you think, I absolutely cannot have that in my dream garden, I would burn it on the compost heap. I would bar the garden gate. I hate it, despise it. It's never having a place in my fantasy garden. What would that be? You know when twice a year the the garden porn arrives, these beautiful catalogues come through the letterbox. Well, I love them. I'm never happier than with a cup of tea and a catalogue. And you flip through and there's beautiful annuals and then there's vegetable seeds. And then the pages from hell. The pink, purple, lime green, orange garden equipment. And it's plastic. I don't understand. Why do you work so hard on making your garden a thing of beauty? But when it comes to gardening tools, you go for brightly coloured plastic. I don't get it. I work very hard at looking after my tools. And I was trying to find a hosepipe last year. I wanted one of those ones that you just tug and it winds automatically. Because me and a hosepipe is a bit like me and cling film or me and sticky tape. <laughs> they shouldn't They shouldn't be together. And I found this, I eventually found one that was quite a, a, it was a colour that would sort of disappear into the garden. And it arrived and I opened it up. It had a bright orange knob on it. No. And it's like, why do you do this? So yes, I'm sorry, it's brightly coloured plastic gardening equipment. I have to agree with you there, but I also have lost many, many 
wooden and non-orange things. This is the only thing it has going for it is that I can always spot the pair of red snips that I've left in the compost heap. Or <laughs> I do understand the red snip thing. I agree. Um, and yes, I would quite like my beautiful walnut-handled secateurs back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you were to pick three more things that you felt you had to have sort of quick fire round that you felt you wanted in your dream garden, what would they be? Ooh, gosh, you've given me quite something to think about on this journey. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, it would have to be more wisteria when I realized that I could actually grow wisteria because I had it for about six or seven years and nothing happened, which I was led to uh, you know, believe that that was fine. It yes. would it would flower. And on the button, it did. Absolutely. And this year, I think there were about 200 of these huge white flowers hanging down. I mean, it was just gorgeous. But I want more. But I don't want to wait seven years. So I might have to buy a, a larger plant. And I think I've run out of walls now. So I almost want another, another garden. But white wisteria would look fabulous in my moss garden. Yes, for sure. So maybe, maybe I need that. <laughs> okay, so that's one extra thing. What else? I'd like some raindrops, please. The moment when you step out into the garden, and there are certain plants, I mean, I'm thinking of Alcamilla mollis, but there's lots of plants that hold the raindrops as drops. And they're quite magical up close. If you get down on your hands and knees and look at them. Sort of in the centre of a leaf, you almost have this pool of mercury. Sort of This just... pool of mercury, this mm. little rock pool. Mm. And I would like raindrops in my garden without, without question. And this isn't in my garden, but it enables me to see my garden. The third thing I would like are in the corners of my windows, because my house is, is, is not the warmest of properties, I have to say. And there's quite a lot of drafts. And in the winter, in the corners, you sometimes get snow ferns. So it's a little icy shape that looks like a fern. And it's in the corners of the windows. And when you're looking out at the garden and you're looking at the first snowdrops coming up and you see these little snow ferns in the corners of the window, I'd like them there all the time. I really would. That was Nigel Slater, the cook and food writer, whose new 30th anniversary edition of autobiography Toast is out now. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. You can find lots more gardening inspiration on our website, gardensillustrated.com. See you next time. <laughs>